0: You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series The Kings and the King, Expectation in the Books of the Kings. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. This morning we are going to continue to look at the downward spiral that the nation of Israel is in. We're in 2 Kings chapter 16 and 17 today. Just as a brief summary to catch you up on where we are, the nation at this point is divided into two kingdoms. Really important to understand because the details are, are big. There's a lot of them, and it's going to be hard and difficult for us to keep all of these straight to understand the story. So the nation's divided into two kingdoms, but as the text is showing us, neither kingdom is faring very well. Both kingdoms continue to have predominantly wicked kings, which only encourage the people to live wicked lives. It's only fueling that. Wicked kings continue to fuel the wicked lives of the people. God has continued to send prophet after prophet to his people to warn them of their need to repent, to sh- show them their sinfulness. To show them they need to turn back to God. But the people continue to despise the prophets. And ultimately, what are they despising? They're despising God's word. They're despising God. They're not listening to him. So let's put it this way, maybe to help us understand where we've been and where we're going. Up until this point in First and 2 Kings, God has shown us the cracks in the foundation of the house of Israel. And today, the question we should wrestle with is, when is the whole house going to crumble down? We've seen the problems with the nation, the cracks in its foundation, and is it going to topple? Since the foundation is faulty, is the whole house going to crumble? And that's what we'll see today. We will see one of the houses of Israel, one of these kingdoms, crumble today. And we'll look at why. Uh, To illustrate this, I was thinking about this this last couple months or so, and about 10, 12 years ago, my wife and I, we were living in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and because married couples do this, we did it. We bought a home, right? That's just what you do, right? So we were renting, and we wanted to buy a house, and we were new into ministry as a youth pastor, not making very much, and so we couldn't afford much and so we were kind of looking around at houses that we could afford, and finally somebody we knew came up to us and was like, I got a house for sale. Um, you guys should come look at it. It's, it's got good square footage. We're like, oh, that's, that would be great, right? We'd like to have a family, and so th- that looks great. Let's go look at it, and when we showed up, we should have just ran, right? Like, that was enough. It should have just been curb appeal says everything, but it wasn't, so we were being kind and walked inside the house and the house continued to prove what we already knew it was a disaster and but this guy was optimistic oh don't you know we'll help you we'll put it together and so we're taking this tour and I think we probably should have ran when we saw the snake pit as he called it the snake pit he's like don't worry about it. we'll take care of that we'll put an egress window in there we'll get rid of that don't even worry about it like oh what okay and as we continued to tour the house, we continued to just see more symptoms of problems. But being early 20s, we didn't have a clue what we were talking about. I'd never fixed anything in my life, and so we're looking at things, and he's kind of reassuring us, you know. So we're in the living room, and there's cracks in the ceiling. He's like, "Just some primer and some paint. We'll fix that right up. No big deal." Didn't ask why there were cracks in the ceiling, right? No big deal. Just ignore that. So there was one symptom that we just completely ignored, cracks in the ceiling. And we went down to the basement, and it was scary, the snake pit that was down there and all that stuff. And there were, like, cracks in the, fountain, in the cement blocks in the basement and holes and things like that. And don't worry about that. You just caulk those, and there's this waterproof paint. Yeah, don't worry about it. No big deal. And being in our early 20s, yeah, that sounds right. I think, yeah, w- how hard could it be? So within that year... There are two nights that I will never forget. And they all reflect the symptoms of the problems that we had seen. One night, it was raining, and I was in the living room, and drops were coming from the cracks in the ceiling. And I'm like, oh, no big deal. I'll go get some paper towel, dab it, put a bucket under there. It's probably just a bad rain, right? This is what happens when it rains really bad. Well, that night, it, those cracks opened up. And it rained in our living room that night, and it's where buckets like that's not just let it rain, right? Just it just destroyed that living room. The second night was remember those cracks and the holes in the cement block? I went downstairs. Our washing, washing machine dryer was in the basement, and I went down there, and there's inches of water, and I'm like, oh no, the washing machine backed up, or the shower backed up, or oh no, and so I'm walking around barefoot in the in the basement. And those holes, quarter size, were just flooding with water into the basement. Like so big, I'm trying to put my hand on it, and it's like pushing me back. And it was just, those two nights proved what I already knew. The house was a mess. And those nights, the house didn't literally crumble, but it it crumbled. It was a mess, a big problem that we had to deal with. That's a good illustration for what's going to happen in our chapters today. You have seen symptoms for weeks of a problem. You have seen cracks in the foundation. And as we look at our text today, the question you'll have to wrestle with is when is it all going to crumble? A shaky foundation never stands. And today we will see one of the houses of Israel crumble. And we'll wrestle with why and how and, and all of those things today. So I hope you're in your text by now. Second Kings, chapters 16 and 17. And we're going to wrestle with the question is, is this whole house going to fall apart? Or will they be able to fix the problems, right, turn around, repent, and will we be able to move on? Today we will see one of these houses crumble. So what we've got in our story is two chapters. The outline's on the screen behind me. Chapter 16 is an entire chapter devoted to the the uh, southern kingdom judah and it's just a picture of their sinfulness it's just a reminder and a review and a recap of the cracks in the of the in their foundation one chapter completely devoted to the spiritual state of judah and then in chapter 17 is a brief summary of israel same idea let's look at the problems reminder be uh, reminded of how bad it is And then following that is a story of one of the two houses collapsing. And today we will. We will see one of the ends of one of the physical kingdoms of Israel. Just so you know where we're going, we're going to wrestle with three questions today. What made God's patience on Israel run out? Like, why did it end today? Why did the kingdom fall and topple today? Second question, was God's judgment fair? And lastly... Why did only Israel crumble? Why not Judah? So that's where we're going. That's your text today. That's your narrative. Let's dive into chapter 16. As I said, chapter 16 is a story about the sinfulness of Judah. It's just a list primarily of how wicked and bad things are. If I were to summarize chapter 16 to you, it would be a detailed account of the extent of Judah's wickedness. Chapter 16 is trying to help you see just how sinful and far from God they have gone. It's showing you the the bleakness of it, the the tragedy of how far they are. It's a list of the obvious cracks in the spiritual foundation. We put up, I won't read the whole chapter. I do want to read the first four verses, but we'll put up a list of the sins that they uh, committed. Let me read the first four verses for you. 2 Kings chapter 16. In the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was twenty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. You hear the wording of it, even how it's written? Everywhere. Sin is everywhere. It's rampant. And maybe the pinnacle of the sin is the king sacrifices his own son as an offering. So here we've got a list of sins. Let me walk you through the rest of the chapter and just help you see just how bad things are. In verse 3, we see the king sacrificing his son to a false god. In verse 4, we see sacrifices on false altars. In verse 7, we see treaties with other nations. In verse 8, we see the misuse of God's money from the house of the Lord, the storehouse, the gathering of the resources, the misuse of that money. In verse 10, we see integrating foreign worship practices into how they were to worship God. In verse 11, we see corrupt and cowardly priests. The priest, the one that was supposed to help Israel stay true to God and, and honor God and obey God, he's a weakling. Whatever King Ahaz asks, recommends, he just says yes. Instead of fighting for spiritual strength and instead of fighting for steadfastness, he's as corrupt as anybody. He's just a pushover. In verse 12, the king is leading the way in false worship. In verse 14, Ahaz the king tears down God's altar and edits it to make it more interesting, to make it better He's altering everything. So here's where the picture in Judah. From the top down, complete wickedness. The king and the priest are as corrupt as anybody. And they're leading the nation towards wickedness and sin. And it's as bleak as it's ever been. Last week, Pastor Todd summarized for you the sins of God's people in three easy-to-understanding categories, or how they should have lived. And then if you were to summarize chapter 16, you could just say they broke all three of these. The nation of Israel is not living up to any of these at this time. Judah for sure was guilty of not obeying these three main categories of sin. And it's so bleak. And that's what chapter 16 is all about. Just how gross and dark and sad God's people are living. And that's our story in chapter 16. Chapter 16 is a list of criminal charges against Judah. And now our job is to look to the judge to see what the sentencing will be for their crimes. And all we're given in chapter 16 is a simple verse, verse 5, that tells us what God does. So you're thinking right now, what do you think the punishment for this crime will be? Let's look at verse 5. Then... Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up. So the two enemy nations form alliance. They come and wage war on Jerusalem, Judah, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer them. That's it. That's what we're told. Judah's as wicked as it's ever been, and the result is mercy. God defends his people. God does not allow them to be defeated. Instead of being destroyed like you would expect, right? Like, chapter 16's bleak. Oh, here comes the punishment. No, it's peace. They're able to last, outstand the enemies. They're able to fight and be protected from the enemies. This is something really interesting we need to understand. Throughout Scripture, winning and losing battles was from God either a blessing or a punishment, right? You know this. That's not new to you. God would use military victories or failures as a form of blessing or curse upon the nation based upon their obedience. God would use winning and losing wars as a form of judgment on his people. We know that God would fight for his people many times. He would protect them. And then other times he would allow their enemies to overcome Israel in battle. That's the story of the book of Judges, how God would continue to allow other nations to come and take them captive and hold them hostages, and it was all a form of God disciplining his children for their lack of obedience. If you want a little bit more detail on that, you can look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, which is a listing of blessings and curses from God based upon the people's obedience or disobedience. And there we're told a little bit how God uses war and enemy nations to either bless his people by protecting them or or cursing them or um, judging them for their wickedness. And here in chapter 16, the people are completely wicked and yet God protects, God defends, God fights for his people. That should be peculiar to you. That should be a little odd. So to summarize chapter 16, it ends with Judah, maybe as sinful as it has ever been, and yet God is merciful to them by allowing them to fend off their foes and keep their lives and their land a little longer instead of bringing judgment upon them like like we should expect. And we'll look at why. Give me just a little bit of time and we'll look at why. So now let's move to chapter 17, okay? Chapter 17 is the same narrative, but it's about Israel, the northern kingdom, and God's response. Verses 1 through 12 describe the sinfulness of the northern kingdom. Let me read for you a few verses from 2 Kings 17. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, uh, Hoshea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. So now we're talking about Israel, capital B in Samaria. And he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord; yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, and he had sent um, for he had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt, and it offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison then he, then the king of assyria invaded all the land and came to samaria and for 3 years he besieged it so now we look at the sinfulness of israel and compare it to the sinfulness of judah and the list or the sins or at least their sinful categories are exactly the same in verse 3 of chapter 17 you have israel making treaties with other nations in verse 3, you also have Israel paying tribute to other nations. In verse 9, you have Israel worshiping false idols. In verse 11, you have false offerings on the false altars. And then in verse 12, you have that they serve and worship false gods, false idols. So the story is the same. Chapter 16, chapter 17, same story. Both kingdoms, terrible. The spiritual health of both nations, of both kingdoms, is terrible. That's our story so far. And it's safe to say that the situation in Israel is the same as it is in Judah. There isn't exclusive worship of the Lord. There's no covenant commitment to the community of God. And there's no cultural distinction at all from the world. Only the opposite is true. They're not staying distinct at all. They're copying. So they're going to different nations. They're seeing, oh, that's interesting. Oh, you guys do that over there. That's cool. Oh, you've got that over here. We should do that. We should do that. You saw that with Ahaz, altering the, the altar to make it look fitting. And he sees what he, an altar in Damascus, and he's like, oh, that's cool. Man, I really I wish I had one of those. That would be awesome in our town. We should get one of those. And he tells the priest, and the priest's like, okay, good idea. And you just see the opposite of distinction. You see conformity. And you see the nation of Israel getting worse and becoming exactly like the other nations. So chapter 17 might be a briefer list of the charges against Israel, but it's the same. It's the same list. Same sinfulness. Same wickedness. And now our job as readers is to look at the judge and see what his sentence will be against Israel. Okay, wickedness, sinfulness. Let's look to God, see what God has to say. And now let's look at verses five and six for God's judgment. Verse five, then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria for three years. He besieged it. And in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, and place them in Halah, and on the Habar, the river of G- uh, Gazan, and in the cities of the Medes. Hmm, does that sound different? Yeah, that's different. In chapter 16, wickedness, and God defends. He protects. Chapter 17, wickedness, and God allows defeat. That's different, isn't it? The story here is different. Instead of God defending his people and fighting for them, he allows them to be defeated in battle and his ju- as his judgment upon them. Israel, the northern kingdom, is defeated after a three-year-long attack. And the remaining Israelites, those that survived that, they're taken to Assyria as captives. It's a bleak story. This is, Things are not good. Both nations completely sinful, and God allows the nation of Israel to be defeated. He doesn't fight for them. He doesn't defend them. He allows the foreign nation to judge Israel and to swoop in and defeat them for three years and then hauls the captives off to the other nations, dispersing them. And at this point, the northern kingdom is done. We call this, right, like the the end of the northern kingdom, the defeat of the northern kingdom. Chapter 17 of 2 Kings. So I want to talk about real quick, why the difference? Why the difference in God's judgment? You see, both Israel and Judah were guilty of the three things we mentioned last week. One, Judah, is shown mercy from God and protected. The other, Israel, receives justice from God, for their sin is defeated by their enemies. The rest of chapter 17 that we haven't looked at yet, Helps us understand the why. Why did this all happen? And we'll look at that for the remainder of our time. So remember those three questions I mentioned at the beginning that we'll talk about these three questions? Let's dive into those now. Number one, why did God's patience run out now? Why, after all this time, the books are pretty lengthy, there's a lot of detail of their sinfulness. Why did God's patience run out now? Why the defeat of Israel? Well, it's in verses 13 to 18. Let me read it for you. Verses 13 of 18, chapter 17. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. Underline that if you don't mind. Verse 14, but they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight none was left but the tribe of judah only that's a brief why because they would not listen sometimes i was thinking about this a lot of times being a parent is difficult and there's moments you have to make some tough decisions right like how many times do i need to tell my children to clean their room Before I do something about it, right? Or how many times do I need to say stop doing something before I make them, right? So, hey, uh, is your room clean? Not yet. Okay. Hey, is your room clean? Not yet. Okay. Is your room clean? I'm coming up there, right? Like, and every Saturday is different because I don't know what my patience is at that day. And like, every, that, That's kind of the story that's going on. How long will God be patient to his children? How many times will he warn them? How many times will he send prophets? How many times will he ask them to repent before he makes them? That's kind of the story that's going on. And chapter 17, he's done. It's time to enforce the rules. It's time to teach them. The lesson they obviously have not learned. Verse 14, they would not listen. A few things I want to point out from the remainder of those verses that I just read. I want you to notice in those verses I read the lack of fear of God or even acknowledgement of God. The nation is living. The people of God are living without God. The nation is completely living as if God doesn't exist. There's no fear of God. And there's no mention of God. The prophets are yelling at them, repent, turn. The day of the Lord is at hand. Admit your sinfulness, turn back to God. And they refuse to listen. These verses tell us that God sent every prophet and seer to them, and they pay them no mind, as if they were deaf to their warnings. God speaks to them via the prophets, and they refuse to listen to their warnings. If you've ever read the prophets, and I'm sure you have, you know just how heartbreaking it was for these men to constantly call the nations to repentance and to receive hostility in return. How long these men would go to them and say, repent, the day of the Lord is at hand, repent, and how poorly they were treated. They weren't just not listened to, they were abused and mistreated and the stories of these prophets was a difficult one. And these are the people that refused to listen to God, that hated God, hated his word, hated the words coming out of the prophet's mouths. Another thing I hope you noticed was there's, they're not only not listening, but there's a lack of remorse and guilt. Israel is sinning and doesn't care. And the sins are just compiling and getting worse. And Israel is sinning and there seems to be no guilt at all that they're living without God. It's, this is not a picture of how God's people were supposed to, to live. They were supposed to be a repentant people and a humble people. They were supposed to own their sin and, and pay for their sin by making sacrifices at the temple. And yet none of that is happening. They're running from God and living as if God doesn't exist. And then, and then maybe... Maybe the straw that broke the camel's back was in verse four. Did you catch it? I hope you did. I think this is, this is the one that, br- that did it. Verse four. Let me read it again for you. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Ho- Hosea for he had sent messengers to sow. Who does the text say is So? The king of egypt and offered no tribute to the king of assyria as he had done year by year i think what happened in verse four is they failed to remember where they came from israel is now at a point of desperation they're being attacked their their treaties are being made to defeat them and israel is at a point where they desperately need help and who did they run to for help egypt they ran to Egypt. Notice anything odd about that? Does that sound weird at all? Let me remind you. Who is Egypt? Egypt's the rival. Egypt's the enemy. If you know your Old Testament, you know how many times God and his characteristic of his people reminds them how I delivered you out of the hand of Egypt. This was their story. This was their narrative. The focal point or the pinnacle of their story was an exodus out of Egypt, out of the hand of Pharaoh. This was their story. It's re- we're reminded of it in every book over and over again. Remember how I delivered you out of Egypt, out of the hand of Pharaoh. Israel's story has been summarized up to this point as an exodus out of Egypt. In a a culmination of an event called the Passover, which was a yearly event where they were supposed to remember the miracle that God did of the death angel who would pass by when the blood was sprinkled on the doorposts. Passover, don't forget. Don't forget how I saved you, I protected you, I redeemed you, I bought you back. I saved you from your bondage in Egypt. And now at their lowest point, Instead of looking to God for help, they look to Egypt for help. What a slap in God's face. We're in desperate times. Things are really bad. Who could we call to for help? God? No, Egypt. Let's call Egypt. Wow. What a desperate place. The Passover, which was a yearly ritual so that they would never forget has been forgotten. And now they are back asking the king of Egypt for help instead of the one who helped them get out of Egypt. What a terrible place they're in. Second question we need to wrestle with was, was God's judgment fair? Whenever we read stories of God not saving, not protecting, allowing his people to go through difficult times, how do you process that? When you read like the wrath of God in stories where God's upset, he's angry, he judges, how do you process that? How do we not lose faith in God or stout, do, uh, um, start doubting God's goodness? What, you know, when, when we read harshness of God, like how do we not doubt? Here's, here's what I think is the answer. The beauty of the Bible is in its detail. Let me explain that. I hope that no one who actually sits down to read the extent of the biblical narrative told in the kings, that they could possibly, right? Like, if you sat down and read 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and you got to chapter 17, I don't think it's possible that somebody could say, Wow, God, short temper, bud. Like, I can't believe you exploded on these people. They've been so good to you. No, like, nobody's going to come to that conclusion. God, if you were to read 1 Kings and 2 Kings, the only conclusion you could come to is, wow, God, you have been patient. These people are bums. How have you endured this long with your people? These people are terrible. I would have paddled that child a long time ago. You have been gracious to these people. I think that's the response you would come to if we read the text Let's remember that one of the purposes of the Bible is to reveal to us the character of God. That's one of its beauties. That's one of its reasons it's so detailed, is it reveals to us the character of God. The text reveals to us what God is like, and it has been very clear up to this point that God is loving and patient, and also just in dealing with sin. This is beautifully told in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 where God lovingly places man and woman inside of a beautiful garden where they can enjoy Him and all of His blessings and benefits. But then in chapter 3, He justly kicks them out of the garden when they rebel against Him. You see His character unfold in two simple chapters. His love and and mercy and His justice in two simple chapters. God is both loving and just to, to His people and that is constant, consistent in our text today as we look at him kicking them out of their home for their sinfulness. That's, this story's not new. God's frustration with sin, that shouldn't be new to you at all. The Bible in its entirety is an unfolding narrator of the character of God given to us by God. But so many times what we want is a one-dimensional God And the one dimension we want a lot of times is God to just be loving and merciful. Just kind. That's the God we want. So we wrestle with texts that are difficult or heavy. I might have told you this illustration before, but it's so good, it's worth repeating. Have you ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? It's a beautiful story. It's an analogy about God. It's a great story. And in this story, there's a conversation between two young girls, the daughters, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about the character of Aslan, who is a picture of God. When in Narnia, the children meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver describe to them the beauty of who Aslan is, his depth, his majesty. Here's how the story goes Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? said mr beaver sternly certainly not i tell you he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea don't you know who is the king of the beast aslan is a lion the lion the great lion oh said susan i thought he was a man is he quite safe i shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion." That you will, dearie. And no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that depiction. The two little girls are trying to understand or figure out Aslan. Is he he nice? Is he kind? Is he gentle? Does he like to cuddle? And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are like, no, he's so much greater than all of that. He's all of that. He's bigger than that. He's a lion. He's the king. Don't you dare simplify him. He's greater than all that. Is he safe? Safe? No, but he's What a beautiful narrative of of the story, the scripture that tells us about what God is like. God's so much greater than we can understand. Here's what we need to understand. God is God. And if you want to understand him, you need to start reading in Genesis 1-1 and stop reading when you get to Revelation chapter 22, verse 21. Let's be very careful not to be one-verse Christians or one-book Christians, or even one-testament Christians. Let's be biblicists and let God tell us what he is exactly like. He is both merciful and just, or as Romans puts it, he is just and the justifier of man. So is his judgment fair? Absolutely. Man was deserving of the wrath that he gave them last question why wasn't the southern kingdom defeated yet we need to handle this real quick why wasn't the southern kingdom defeated yet was it because they didn't deserve it were they more moral no that was my first slide the whole list of their sinfulness so that's not it Uh, samaria or judah was as sinful if not worse than israel so that's not it but in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 18 and 19, we're told the reason. 2 Kings 17, 18 and 19. It says this. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah. Okay, now we're going to talk about D- Judah. Verse 19. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. So yes, they're as guilty That's not the reason. So what is the reason? It's just God's mercy. It's just God decided not to give them what they deserved. That's what we're told. They're as guilty, yet they didn't get the same punishment. That's what we're told. It's God's mercy. God in his kindness doesn't give all of Israel what they deserve. Instead, he shows mercy to some. That's all we're told from the text. But praise the Lord, we're thousands of years removed from the story we have the canon of scripture we know a deeper truth and here's the deeper truth the deeper reason he pardoned judah is something we only know from understanding the full story of the bible here's the reason the reason god spared judah was because judah holds the hope of israel the messiah what we see starting in Genesis 3 and continuing on through the rest of the pages of Scripture is God's plan to send the Savior the world and his plan is to do this through the specific tribe of Judah. That was his plan, to send it through the line of Judah. So he spares Judah for the sake of his plan. He spares Judah because he has a Savior who will come. And as our story continues, what I want you to do from now on is to keep your eye on the southern kingdom, Judah, to see just how God will continue to preserve the line of Judah in spite of their terrible sinfulness. That's why he's preserving, because he has a plan, because he knows what he's doing. So if I can summarize this all up, I want to kind of just put this into a couple things that you can be like, okay, I get it. Two chapters, tons of details, lots of kings' names, locations, war. Sometimes God's merciful, sometimes he's just. Like, What do I do with all this information? Let's just summarize it in a couple couple three points, okay? Here's what I think you should walk away with today. What do I learn from 2 Kings 16 and 17? Number one, you're supposed to see man's character. From all those lists of sinfulness... What you should see is what mankind is really like. Mankind loves sin. All of us. That's who we are. That's our character. We love sin. And man tries to live independently from God. Today, our text reminds us, uh, reminds me and you, of what we are like without the mercy of God. Without God's mercy on us, that would be us. Those lists would be your story. That would be your high school years. That would be exactly what all of us were like, except for the mercy of God. It should teach you what you're like. It should be a mirror. Number two, the text teaches us what God's character is like. And the text is very clear that God hates sin, He hates sin. He despises it because it wasn't how you were made. And it teaches us that God won't let man get away with sin. He's a just judge. Let our text today remind you of how much God hates your sin. It should scare you. The text today should reveal to you your sin and then remind you God hates it. He hates our sin. God is not blind to your secret sins either. You may be fooling your spouse. You may be fooling your kids. You may be fooling your employer. You're not fooling God. God sees, God knows, and he's dealing and he will deal. Repent. That's what we're called to do. Listen to the prophets. Repent for the kingdom of God is a hand. Turn from your sins, turn to God. Own your sinfulness and ask for his mercy. And then lastly, the point of the text is to see God's plan. It's hinted. I'll give you that. In the text, it's hidden. We're just told that he preserves Judah. That's all we're told. But that's enough, Bible readers, to see God's plan. We know that God's going to deal with sin either by his justice or his mercy. Since the beginning, God has always been working his plan to once and for all deal with sin. As an example of this, think about the prophets. No matter what prophet you think of, they always had two prophecies, two things they were warning the people about. The first was the day of the Lord, which was coming judgment. That wasn't good news. So they always told the nation of Israel and whoever they were prophesying to, you need to repent for the day of the Lord is at hand. God's coming and he's gonna judge. But they also had a second prophecy too, a second thing that they warned or told of. And that was a future king or a future Messiah. See, every time the prophets opened their mouth, they told people God's going to deal with sin either by judging it in the day of the Lord or by solving it and paying for it by the coming king, Messiah. God has always had a plan to pay, to take care of sin, to deal with sin. Both of these were promised from God that he would deal with sin. And that's a great reminder for us. Either we'll pay for our sin, or it's possible that we could look to God to pay the penalty for our sin. And that's where our take-home truth takes us today. In understanding that God's wrath and justice are always deserved. Man, start there when you open your Bible. Man's sinful and deserves justice. And then, move on to, it helps us remember that God's mercy and grace are always undeserved. Judah was just as guilty as Israel, but they got mercy. Whenever we receive God's mercy and grace, it's undeserved. And that take-home truth beautifully points us to the story of Jesus. You see, this is what makes the story of Jesus so amazing. Because we're gathered to here today because God has already dealt with our sin 2,000 years ago in the story of Jesus. And instead of giving us The justice we deserve, he poured his justice out on Jesus. In just one month from today, we'll celebrate Christmas. And we will remind you and you'll remind your children of the story where God defeated sin by sending his son to earth to pay the penalty that we deserved. The penalty for our sin. Here's how Galatians puts it. Galatians puts it so beautifully. It says this. Christ, the Messiah, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The justice that you deserved has been paid for by another, Jesus Christ. Instead of wrath, we get love, and only because of our substitute, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Allow the good news that mercy and grace have come and allow the truth that you deserve his wrath and justice to humble you and turn to Jesus, repent and be reminded today of his love and kindness. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.